Bliss by Catherine Mansfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie van Walchem. Bliss by Catherine Mansfield. Although Bertha Young was thirty, she still had moments like this when she wanted to run instead of walk, to take dancing steps on and off the pavement, to bowl a hoop, to throw something up in the air and catch it again, or to stand still and laugh at nothing, at nothing simply. What can you do if you are thirty, and turning the corner of your own street, you are overcome suddenly by a feeling of bliss absolute bliss as if though you'd suddenly swallowed the bright piece of that late afternoon sun and it burned in your bosom sending out a little shower of sparks into every particle into every finger and toe oh is there no way you can express it without being drunk and disorderly how idiotic civilization is why be given a body if you have to keep it shut up in a case like a rare, rare fiddle? No, that about the fiddle is not quite what I mean, she thought, running up the steps and feeling in her bag for the key. She'd forgotten it, as usual, and rattling the letter-box. It's not what I mean, because—thank you, Mary. She went into the hall. Is nurse back? Yes, ma'am. And has the fruit come? Yes, ma'am, everything's come. Bring the fruit up to the dining-room, will you? I'll arrange it before I go upstairs. It was dusky in the dining-room and quite chilly. But all the same Bertha threw off her coat. She could not bear the tight clasp of it another moment, and the cold air fell on her arms. But in her bosom there was still that bright, glowing place, that shower of little sparks coming from it. It was almost unbearable. She hardly dared to breathe for fear of fanning it higher, and yet she breathed deeply, deeply. She hardly dared to look into the court mirror, but she did look, and it gave her back a woman, radiant, with a smiling, trembling lips, with big, dark eyes and an air of listening, waiting for something divine to happen, that she knew must happen infallibly. Mary brought in the fruit on a tray, and with it a glass bowl and a blue dish, very lovely, with a strange sheen on it, as if though it had been dipped in milk. "'Shall I turn on the light, ma'am?' "'No, thank you. I can see quite well.' There were tangerines and apples stained with a strawberry pink, some yellow pears, smooth as silk, some white grapes covered with a silver bloom, and a big cluster of purple ones. These last she had bought to tone in with the new dining-room carpet. Yes, that did sound rather far-fetched and absurd, but it was really why she had bought them. She had a thought in the shop. I must have some purple ones to bring the carpet up to the table, and it had seemed quite centre at the time. When she had finished with them, and had made two pyramids of these bright round shapes, she stood away from the table to get the effect, and it really was most curious, for the dark table seemed to melt into the dusky light, and the glass dish and the blue bowl to float in the air. 
This, of course, in the present mood, was so incredibly beautiful. She began to laugh. No, no, I'm, I'm getting hysterical. And she seized her bag and coat and ran upstairs to the nursery. Nurse sat at a low table giving little Bee her supper after her bath. The baby had on a white flannel gown and a blue woolen jacket and her dark, fine hair was brushed up into a funny little peak. She looked up when she saw her mother and began to jump. Now, my lovely, eat it up like a good girl, said Nurse, setting her lips in a way that Bertha knew that meant she had come into the nursery at another wrong moment. Has she been good, Nanny? She's been a little sweet all the afternoon, whispered Nanny. We went to the park, and I sat down on a chair, and took her out of the pram, and a big dog came along and put its head on my knee, and she clutched its ear, tucked it. Oh, you should have seen her. Bertha wanted to ask if it wasn't rather dangerous to let her clutch at a strange dog's ear, but she did not dare to. She stood watching them, her hands by her side, like the poor little girl in front of the rich little girl with the doll. The baby looked up at her again, stared, and then smiled so charmingly that Bertha couldn't help crying, "'Oh, Nanny, do let me finish giving her her supper while you put the bath things away.' "'Well, ma'am, she oughtn't to be changed hands while she's eating,' said Nanny, still whispering. "'It unsettles her. It's very likely to upset her.' How absurd it was! "'Why have a baby, if it has to be kept, not in a case like a rare, rare fiddle?' but in another woman's arms. Oh, I must, said she. Very offended, Nanny handed her over. Now don't excite her after her supper. You know you do, ma'am, and I have such a time with her after. Thank heaven, Nanny went out of the room with the bath towels. Now I've got you to myself, my little precious, said Bertha as the baby leaned against her. She ate delightfully, holding up her lips for the spoon and then waving her hands. Sometimes she wouldn't let the spoon go, and sometimes, just as Bertha had filled it, she waved it away to the four winds. When the soup was finished, Bertha turned round to the fire. "'You're nice! You're very nice!' said she, kissing a warm baby. "'I'm fond of you. I like you.' And, indeed, she loved little Bee so much, her neck as she bent forward, her exquisite toes as they shone transparent in the firelight, that all her feeling of bliss came back again, and again she didn't know how to express it, what to do with it. "'You're wanted on the telephone,' said Nanny, coming back in triumph and seizing her little Bee. Down she flew. It was Harry. "'Oh, is it you, Burr? Look here, I'll be late. I'll take a taxi and come along as quickly as I can. But get dinner put back ten minutes, will you, all right? Yes, perfectly. Oh, Harry! Yes? What had she to say? She had nothing to say. She only wanted to get in touch with him for a moment. She couldn't absurdly cry, Hasn't it been a divine day? What is it? crept out the little voice. Nothing. Entendu, said Bertha, and hung up the receiver, thinking how more than idiotic civilization was. They had people coming to dinner. The Norman knights, a very sound couple. He was about to start a theatre, and she was awfully keen on interior decoration. 
a young man, Eddie Warren, who had just published a little book of poems, and whom everybody was asking to dine, and a find of Bertha's, called Pearl Fulton. What Miss Fulton did, Bertha didn't know. They had met at a club, and Bertha had fallen in love with her, as she always did fall in love with beautiful women who had something strange about them. The provoking thing was that, though they had been about it together and met a number of times and really talked, Bertha couldn't yet make her out. Up to a certain point, Miss Fulton was really wonderfully frank, but a certain point wasn't there, and beyond that she would not go. Was there anything beyond it? Harry said no, voted a dullish and cold like all blonde women, with a touch, perhaps, of anemia of the brain. But Bertha wouldn't agree with him, not yet, at any rate. No, the way she has of sitting with her head a little on one side and smiling has something behind it, Harry, and I must find out what that something is. Most likely it's a good stomach, answered Harry. He made a point of catching Bertha's heels with replies of that kind. Liver frozen, my dear girl, or pure flatulence, or kidney disease, and so on. For some strange reason Bertha liked this, and almost admired it in him very much. She went into the drawing-room and lighted the fire. Then, picking up the cushions one by one that Mary had disposed so carefully, she threw them back onto the chairs and the couches. That made all the difference. The room came alive at once. As she was about to throw the last one, she surprised herself by suddenly hugging it to her, passionately, passionately. But it did not put out the fire in her bosom. Oh, on the contrary! The windows of the drawing-room opened on to a balcony overlooking the garden. At the far end, against the wall, there was a tall, slender pear-tree in fullest richest bloom. It stood perfect, as if they would be calmed against a jade green sky. Bertha couldn't help feeling, even from this distance, that it had not a single bud or a faded petal. Down below in the garden-beds, the red and yellow tulips, heavy with flowers, seemed to lean upon the dusk. A grey cat, dragging its belly, crept across the lawn, and the black one, its shadow, trailed after. The sight of them, so intent and so quick, gave Bertha a curious shiver. "'What creepy things cats are!' she stammered, and she turned away from the window and began walking up and down. "'Oh!' How strong the jonquil smelt in the warm room! Too strong? Oh, no! And yet, as though overcome, she flung down on a couch and pressed her hands to her eyes. I'm too happy, too happy, she murmured. And she seemed to see on her eyelids the lovely pear tree with its wide-open blossoms as a symbol of her own life. Really, really, she had everything. She was young. Harry and she were as much in love as ever, and they got on together splendidly and were really good pals. She had an adorable baby. They didn't have to worry about money. They had this absolutely satisfactory housing garden. And friends, modern, thrilling friends, writers and painters and poets, or people keen on social questions, just the kind of friends they wanted. 
and then there were books and there was music and she had found a wonderful little dressmaker they were going abroad in the summer and their new cook made the most superb omelettes i'm absurd absurd she sat up but she felt quite dizzy quite drunk it must have been the spring yes it was the spring now she was so tired she could not drag herself upstairs to dress a white dress a string of jade beads green shoes and stockings it wasn't intentional she had a thought of this scheme hours before she stood at the drawing-room window her petals rustled softly into the hall and she kissed Miss Norman Knight, who was taking off the most amusing orange coat with a procession of black monkeys around to hem and up the front. Why? Why? Why is the middle class so stodgy, so utterly without sense of humour? My dear, it's only by a fluke that I am here at all. Norman being the protective fluke, for my darling monkey so upset the train that it rose to a man and simply ate me with its eyes did laugh wasn't amused that i should have laughed no just stared and bored me through and through but the cream of it was said norman pressing a large tortoise-shell-rimmed monocle into his eye you don't mind me telling this face do you At the home and among their friends they called each other face and mug the cream of it was when she being full-fed turned to the woman beside her and said haven't you ever seen a monkey before "'Oh, yes!' Mrs. Norman Knight joined in the laughter. "'Wasn't that too absolutely creamy?' And the funnier thing still was that now her coat was off, she did look like a very intelligent monkey, who had even made that yellow silk dress out of scraped banana skins, and the ramber earrings that were like little dangling nuts. "'This is a sad, sad fall,' said Mug, pausing in front of Little Bee's perambulator. When the perambulator comes into the hall, and he waved the rest of the quotation away. This is a sad, sad fall, said Mark, pausing in front of Little Bee's perambulator. When the perambulator comes into the hall, and he waved the rest of the quotation away. The bell rang. It was lean, pale Eddie Warren, as usual, in a state of acute distress. It is the right house, isn't it? he pleaded. "'Oh, I think so. I hope so,' said Bertha brightly. "'I have had such a dreadful experience with the taxi-man. It was most sinister. I couldn't get him to stop. The more I knocked and called, the faster he went, and in the moonlight this bizarre figure with a flattened head crouching over the little wheel.' He shuddered, taking off an immense white silk scarf. Bertha noticed that her socks were white, too. Most charming.' "'But how dreadful!' she cried. "'Yes, it really was,' said Eddie, following her into the drawing-room. "'I saw myself driving through the eternity in a timeless taxi.' He knew the Norman Knights. In fact, he was going to write a play for N.K. when the theatre scheme came off. "'Well, Warren, how's the play?' said Norman Knight, dropping his monocle and giving his eye a moment in which to rise to the surface before it was screwed down again. And Mrs. Norman Knight— "'Oh, Mr. Warren, what happy socks!' "'I am so glad you like them,' said he, staring at his feet. "'They seem to have got so much whiter since the moon rose.' And he turned his lean, sorrowful young face to Bertha. "'There is the moon, you know.' She wanted to cry. 
I'm sure there is, often, often. He really was a most attractive person, but so was Faye scratched before the fire in a banana skins, and so was Mark smoking a cigarette, and saying as he flicked the ash, Why doth the bridegroom tarry? There he is now. Bang went the front door open and shut. Harry shouted, Hello, you people, down in five minutes, and they heard him swarm up the stairs. Bertha couldn't help smiling. She knew how he loved doing things at high pressure. What, after all, did the next five minutes matter? But he would pretend to himself that they mattered beyond measure, and then he would make a great point of coming into the drawing-room extravagantly cool and collected. Harry had such a zest for life. Oh, how she appreciated it in him! And his passion for fighting, for seeking in everything that came up against him another test of his power and of his courage. That, too, she understood, even when it made him just occasionally to other people who didn't know him well, a little ridiculous, perhaps. But there were moments when he rushed into battle where no battle was. She talked and laughed, and positively forgot until he had come in, just as she had imagined, that Pearl Fulton had not turned up. "'I wonder if Miss Fulton has forgotten.' "'I expect so,' said Harry. "'Is she on the phone?' "'Ah, there's a taxi now.' And Bertha smiled with that little air of proprietorship that she always assumed while her women finds were new and mysterious. "'She lives in taxis.' "'She'll run too fat if she does,' said Harry, coolly ringing the bell for dinner. "'Prideful danger for blonde women.' "'Harry, don't!' warned Bertha, laughing up at him. Came another tiny moment while they waited, laughing and talking, just a trifle too much at their ease, a trifle too unaware. And then Miss Fulton, all in silver, with a silver fillet binding her pale blonde hair, came in smiling, her hat a little on one side. "'Am I late?' "'No, not at all,' said Bertha. "'Come along.' and she took her arm, and they moved into the dining-room. What was there in the touch of that cool arm that could fan, fan, start blazing, blazing the fire of bliss that Bertha did not know what to do with? Miss Fulton did not look at her, but then she seldom did look at people directly. Her heavy eyelids lay upon her eyes, and the strange half-smile came and went upon her lips as though she lived by listening rather than seeing. But Bertha knew suddenly, as if the longest, the most intimate look had passed between them, as if they had said to each other, You too? That pale faulting, staring the beautiful red soup in the grey plate, was feeling just what she was feeling. And the others, Faze and Mug, Eddie and Harry, the spoons rising and falling, dabbing their lips with their napkins, crumbling bread, fiddling with the forks and glasses, and talking. I met her at the Alpha Show, the weirdest little person. She not only cut off her hair, but she seemed to have taken a dreadfully good snap off her legs and arms and her neck and her poor little nose as well. Isn't she very lié with my glode? The man who wrote a laugh and false teeth? He wants to write a play for me, one act. One man decides to commit suicide, gives all the reasons why he should and why he shouldn't, and just as he made up his mind either to do it or not to do it, curtain, not half a bad idea. 
what's it going to call it stomach trouble i think i have come across the same idea in a little french review quite unknown in england no they didn't share it they were dears dears and she loved having him there at the table and giving them delicious food and wine in fact she longed to tell them how delightful they were and what decorative group they made how they seemed to set one another off and how they reminded her of a play by chekhov harry was enjoying his dinner it was part of his well not his nature exactly and certainly not his pose his something or rather to talk about food and to glory in his shameless passion for the white flesh of the lobster and the green of pistachio's ices green and cold like the eyelids of egyptian dancers when he looked up at her and said bertha this is a very admirable souffle she almost could have wept with childlike pleasure oh why did you feel so tender towards the whole world to-night everything was good was right all that happened seemed to fill again her bringing cup of bliss and still the back of her mind there was a pear tree it would be silver now in the light of poor dear reddy's moon silver as miss fulton sat there turning a tangerine in the slender fingers that were so pale a light seemed to come from them what she simply couldn't make out what was miraculous was how she should have guessed miss fulton's mood so exactly and so instantly for she never doubted for a moment that she was right and yet what had she to go on less than nothing i believe this does happen very very rarely between women never between men thought bertha but while i am making the coffee in the drawing-room perhaps she will give a sign what she meant by that she did not know and what would happen after that she could not imagine while she thought like this she saw herself talking and laughing she had to talk because of her desire to laugh i must laugh or die but when she noticed face's funny little habit of tucking something down the front of her bodies as if she kept tiny secret hordes of nuts there too bertha had to dig her nails into her hands so as not to laugh too much it was over at last and come and see my new coffee machine said bertha we only have a new coffee machine once a fortnight said harry face took her arm this time miss fulton bent her head and followed after the fire had died down in the drawing-room to a red flickering nest of baby phoenixes said face don't turn up the light for a moment it is so lovely and down she crouched by the fire again she was always called without her little red flannel jacket of course thought bertha at that moment miss fulton gave the sign have you a garden said the cool sleepy voice this was so exquisite on her part that all bertha could do was to obey she crossed the room pulled the curtains apart and opened those long windows there she breathed and the two women stood side by side looking at the slender flowering tree although it was so still it seemed like the flame of a candle to stretch up to point to quiver in the bright air to grow taller as they gazed 
almost to touch the rim of the round silver moon. How long did they stand there, both, as it were, caught in that circle of unearthly light, understanding each other perfectly, creatures of another world, and wondering what they were to do in this one, with all this blissful treasure that burned in their bosoms and dropped in silver flowers from their hair and hands? Forever, for a moment? And did Miss Fulton murmur, Yes, just that? Or did Bertha dream it? Then the light was snapped on, and face made the coffee, and Harry said, My dear Mrs. Knight, don't ask me about my baby. I never see her. I shan't feel the slightest interest in her until she has a lover. And Mark took his eye out of the conservatory for a moment, and then put it on the glass again. And Eddie Warren drank his coffee, and sat down the cup with a face of anguish, as if though he had drunk and seemed the spider. "'What I want to do is to give the young man a show. "'I believe Londy is simply teeming with first-job unwritten plays. "'What I want to say to him is, here's a theatre, fire ahead.' "'You know, my dear, I'm going to decorate a room for the Jacob Nathans. "'Oh, I'm so tempted to do a fried fishy scheme with the backs of the chairs, "'shaped like frying pans and lovely chipped potatoes embroidered all over the curtains.' The trouble with our young writing men is that they are still too romantic. You can't put out to sea without being seasick and wanting a basin. Well, why won't they have the courage of those basins? A dreadful poem about a girl who was violated by a beggar without a nose in a little wood. Miss Fulton sank into the lowest, deepest chair, and Harry handed round the cigarette. From the way he stood in front of her, shaking the silver box and saying abruptly, Egyptian, Turkish, Virginian, they're all mixed up. Bertha realized that she not only bored him, he really disliked her. And she decided from the way Miss Fulton said, No, thank you, I won't smoke, that she felt it too, and was hurt. Oh, Harry, don't dislike her. You're quite wrong about her. She's wonderful, wonderful. And besides, how can you feel so differently about someone who means so much to me? I shall try to tell you when we are in bed tonight what has been happening, what she and I have shared. At those last words, something strange and almost terrifying darted into Bertha's mind. And this something blind and smiling whispered to her, Soon these people will go. The house will be quiet, quiet, the lights will be out, and you and he will be alone together in the dark room, the warm bed. She jumped from her chair and ran over to the piano. What a pity someone does not play, she cried. What a pity somebody does not play. For the first time in her life, Bertha Young desired her husband. Oh, she'd loved him. She'd been in love with him, of course, in every other way, but just not in that way. And equally, of course, she'd understood it, that he was different. They discussed it so often. It had worried her dreadfully at first to find that she was so cold. But after a time, it had not seemed to matter. They were so frank with each other, such good pals. That was the best of being modern. But now, ardently, ardently the words ached in her ardent body was this what that feeling of bliss had been leading up to 
But then, my dear, said Mrs. Norman Knight, you know our shame. We are victims of time and train. We live in Hampstead. It's been so nice. I'll come with you into the hall, said Bertha. I loved having you, but you must not miss last train. That's awful, isn't it? Have a whisky night before you go, called Harry. No, thanks, old chap. Bertha could squeeze his hand for that as she shook it. Good night, good bye, she cried from the top steps, feeling that this self of hers was taking leave of them forever. When she got back into the drawing room, the others were on the move. There you can go part of the way in my taxi. I shall be so thankful not to have to face another drive alone after my dreadful experience. You can get a taxi up the rank just at the end of the street. You won't have to walk more than a few yards. That's a comfort. I'll go and put on my coat. Miss Fulton moved towards the hall, and Bertha was following, and Harry almost pushed past. Let me help you. Bertha knew he was repenting his rudeness. She let him go. What a boy he was in some ways. So impulsive, so simple. And Eddie and she were left by the fire. I wonder if you have seen Bilk's new poem called Table d'Ote, said Eddie softly. It's so wonderful. In the last anthology, have you got a copy? I'd so like to show it to you. It begins with an incredibly beautiful line. Why must it always be tomato soup? Yes, said Bertha, and she moved noiselessly to a table opposite the drawing-room door, and Eddie glided noiselessly after her. She picked up the little book and gave it to him. They had not made a sound. While he looked it up, she turned her head towards the hall, and she saw Harry with Miss Fulton's coat in his arms, and Miss Fulton with her back turned to him and her head bent. He tossed the coat away, put his hands on her shoulders, and turned her violently to him. His lips said, I adore you, and Miss Fulton laid her moonbeam fingers on his cheeks and smiled a sleepy smile. Harry's nostrils quivered. His lips curled back in a hideous grin, while he whispered, Tomorrow, and with her eyelids, Miss Fulton said, Yes. Here it is, said Eddie. Why must it always be tomato soup? It's deeply true, don't you feel? Tomato soup is so dreadfully eternal. If you prefer, said Harry's voice very loud from the hall, I can phone you a cab to come to the door. Oh, no, it's not necessary, said Miss Fulton. She came up to Bertha and gave her the slender fingers to hold. Goodbye. Thank you so much. Goodbye, said Bertha. Miss Fulton held her hand a moment longer. You're lovely, Petrie, she murmured. And then she was gone, with Eddie following like the black cat following the grey cat. I'll shut up shop, said Harry, extravagantly cool and collected. Your lovely Petrie. 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 Bertha simply ran over to the long windows. Oh, what's going to happen now? she cried. Petrie was as lovely as ever and as full of flower, and as still. End of Bliss 
Recording by Julie van Mallegem.